0: December 26, 2004. That was the day a huge earthquake happened. In fact, it's the third largest earthquake ever recorded, and it had the longest duration of faulting that has ever been observed, between 8 and 10 minutes. But there was something different about this earthquake. It happened underwater. It took place in the Indian Ocean. The epicenter was off the west coast of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. The result of this enormous earthquake happening under the ocean was that it created massive waves of water up to 100 feet or about 30 meters high. These waves arrived without warning. More than 227,000 people woke up that morning and went through their normal routine not realizing it was their last day to be alive.
1: Good evening. More than 11,000 people are now thought to have been killed in Southern Asia after an undersea earthquake sent enormous waves rolling across the Indian Ocean. The quake measured 8.9 on the Richter scale, the biggest in the world for 40 years. Waves up to 10 meters high engulfed the coasts of many countries. The quake's epicentre was off the island of Sumatra in northwestern Indonesia, where more than 4,000 people are thought to have died. In Sri Lanka, officials say more than 3,000 people have been killed and more than a million affected. In southern India, 3,000 people, mostly fishermen, are reported dead. At least 300 have been killed in southern Thailand, including some tourists, and hundreds of people are missing. And waves swamped the low-lying Maldive Islands, leaving the capital, Mali, two-thirds underwater. Gareth Furby reports.
2: For many tourists in southern Thailand, this was a paradise. Not anymore. Survivors here evacuated on the island of P.P., well known to many as the perfect setting for the movie The Beach. And from a tourist in the Maldives, this account of her survival. We didn't realize we just saw a water plane coming up and towards the building and people from outside screaming and then we saw the water come in the building and very fast. Pictures from Indian television show the water overwhelming large areas of the coast. Hundreds of fishermen are among those reported missing. India's Prime Minister says everything possible will be done to help those affected. My heart goes out in sympathy to all those families who have lost their dear ones sri lanka has declared a national disaster and is appealing for international aid
0: i remember when it happened it was a sunday the day after christmas of course it was the leading news story all over the world i heard how the story unfolded how the underwater earthquake happened and the unbelievable numbers as the death toll kept rising It was an incredible tragedy, but I was in the US and that horrific scene was on the other side of the world. It didn't seem real, but for my guest today, Aaron, that scene was very real. He was there. Real people in unreal situations.
3: There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom.
0: My friend has been shot. I'm in the, literally inside the river
1: and I'm inside my
0: car. He
2: had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire.
0: If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm gonna kill you.
2: And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're gonna be okay. And
0: I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on.
2: And I looked into the
0: garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top click on Try Free, and you're in. On Android, just go to WhatWasThatLike.com/plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. I'm not a rock climber, so i got to ask you this. Why is the rock climbing in Thailand among the best in the world?
4: Well, first off, it's probably the only rock climbing you can do in your bare feet in a perfect white sand beach, uh, which is which is really unusual. You know, it's uh, it's like half a kind of beach sunbathing, half extreme sport, uh, which is a which is a really nice combination. But they also just have these beautiful kind of limestone cliffs just jutting out of the jungle, and a lot of them are actually out to sea, which is which is really special because you can. You can do this thing called deep water soloing, which is, um, you know, you get a boat out there and you kind of, the boat goes right up to the edge of the cliff and you, and you hold on and you climb up, but there's no rope. It just is a kind of overhanging cliff. And if you fall, you just fall into the deep ocean. So it's really fun for that. I tried a bit of that, but I don't know if my climbing skills were up to, or maybe it was just like my my mental skills were up to get letting me get too high up there. But um, but yeah, we loved it. My my now wife, but girlfriend, and I were traveling around there, and we were both big into rock climbing at the time, and it was uh, it was a beautiful place to go and visit. Awesome! This sounds beautiful. I've never been to Thailand. I'd love to
0: go there sometime. When this happened, you had the whole month of December off work.
4: <laughs> yeah, I. Um, well, we both worked for the same company. We met there. Uh, it was a music management company called IE Music in London, and I had the I had the best boss. He was like this total rock and roll '60s boss. You know, he used to work for Island Records and and manage a, a bunch of the big bands there, T Rex, and it was just one of those offices which. Was, was a lot of fun to work with. We would work all really hard during the year. And then he would just shut down the office through December. He, every December, he'd be like, right, that's it. I'm out of here. That means you're out of here too. And if you didn't have a tour on or something like that, you're allowed to just, to just go. So, uh, Jill and I would just, kind of go backpacking for a month every, every December, um, for about four or five years, we did that, which was is a really amazing way to see a country, you know, to have that amount of time to properly get it into you and, and, uh, enjoy it. So Thailand was, uh, I think our, our second trip that we did that. And you went there
0: specifically for the rock climbing, right? or, or, or I mean, obviously they have other things that you can do there.
4: We went there for the rock climbing and the diving. Really, yeah, we went. Um, so we f- we flew over to Bangkok, and it, it is an incredible place. If you've never been to Asia, there's just something about the the otherness of it, which is really different to traveling in in America, or Europe, um, or even S- South America in a way. It just it feels like a very different country. And Bangkok is kind of mad and crazy, and you go and see the temples and all that sort of stuff. But we got out there pretty quickly, and then went down to Phuket. Which is an island down in the south, and it's it's really great for the for diving. So we went there and did our paddy course, and spent uh, about five days there. And then we went over to we got a ferry over to uh, Krabi, uh, which is this uh, region just off the coast of, of Phuket, really a couple hours off the coast. And it was there we were intending to we were intending to go to this island called uh, Koh Pipi. Phi. We had made these plans to spend Christmas on this island. It's like this beautiful. Paradise Island. It's basically almost like an atoll with a double beach. So you're on the beach and you have like ocean on both sides of you and uh, beautiful mountains um, and just a really chill place. And, and that's where we had planned to go. But on the ferry, we met, we just met some people. It's one of those ferries where there's like an open air deck and we went up there and we met some other travelers. And saw that they had some rock climbing equipment on and stuff. And, and we went up to them and we said, oh, hey, you know, we're climbers too. We're looking for a really good place to go. We've heard it's amazing. Where's the best place to go? And they said, you have to go to this this beach called Tonsai. It's it's, it's like the place to go. It's filled with climbers. You'll absolutely love it. And so the ferry was actually stopping at, at Raleigh Beach, which is right next door to, to Tonsai. And on the spur of the moment, we decided to, to not go to co but to stop here on Tonsai instead and spend a few days there. And that decision ended up being an absolutely critical decision and a, and a real stroke of luck. Before we get into that
0: part, I, I remember you, when you originally told me about this, you had a bad feeling about this trip on the way,
4: like, in the plane, yeah. and and before then, too, it was really weird. It was one of those things that i I really can't explain now, and i I couldn't explain then either. It was, you know, I'm not someone who, who I'm not one hundred percent cynical, but at the same time, I'm not someone who uh, necessarily believes in, you know, supernatural things or psychic phenomena or anything like that. but i I really can't deny what happened. And I just had this feeling leading up to this trip that that something bad was going to happen. And I kept putting it out of my mind. I was talking to Jill about it, and I kept putting it out of my mind. Like, stop being so ridiculous. You know, you're just stressed at work. You've got too much going on. It's just stuff like that, kind of bleeding over into into this, and that's why you're feeling like that. But I couldn't shake it, and like, I went to see my mom before I left to make sure that I'd sort of say goodbye to her and given a hug. I did lots of things like that, you know. I- yeah, that sounds really serious. I mean, you've gone on trips like this before. Have you ever had a feeling like that? Never and never since, like uh, you know, I'm always really excited before I go on a trip, kind of trying to absorb all the different things we're going to see and read background, and yeah, it's just pure excitement. I've never had a bad feeling about it, and and that's why it was so strange. And I kind of just forcibly put it out of my mind. But when we got to the plane, when I actually got on the plane and they closed the doors, I started hyperventilating. I, I basically. Myself having a a kind of panic attack, um, which I had had sometimes in the past but hadn't had for for years. And so I kind of knew what it was. And I said to Jill, I just, I think we're going to die there. I I don't know why. I think, I don't, I feel like we're not going to make it back. You know, I was on the verge of tears. And I, I, and she was sort of calming me down. And she's like, Oh my, do you want to get off the plane? I'm like, No, 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 no. I'm just being stupid, you know, but I, I, I had this such a strong feeling and I, afterwards I've just, and to this day I can't really reconcile where that came from or why I had that. And I know, I know people listening will think, Oh, you know, it's just a coincidence. And, and, you know, I know how memory works and you can kind of put things, implant things in your memory uh, post-dated, but I just have to say that that's not the case in this instance. You know, I, I really, I really did have a, strong, instinctual feeling that just kept coming back and back again. Hey, you know, some things you just can't explain,
0: but you know, what happened, happened. So anyway, okay. So you are, you went to Tansai. Yes. And you, you
4: were looking for a place on the beach and what what happened when you got there? The really interesting thing in the, in the setup to this is there were just a number of incidents which happened, which led to us kind of surviving this. And there were so many of them that it's so strange to look back and, and think of all those coincidences, of all those kind of roads branching. And if you'd gone down one route, you would have had a completely different outcome. So the first one was not going to Koh Phi, Phi. Koh Phi Phi ended up being one of the absolute worst hit islands in uh, the whole of Thailand because it's this really shallow island. And when the, when the wave hit it, it, it completely overran the whole beach. And, um, and that was your,
0: your original plan was to spend Christmas there.
4: Yeah. You know, and Jill really wanted to do that too. I mean, she was into the climbing as well, but she's like, look, we want to have a holiday as well. We want to chill out. This is like the paradise Island. So we had always spent plan to spend it there, but there's very little high ground there. So there was a lot of casualties on that Island. And we would almost certainly have tried to get a place on the beach. and And that was this the second thing that happened. So you basically um get off on this the, the ferry on this place called Al Nang, and then you have to get a one of the little Thai longtail fishing boats down to Raleigh Beach. So it's really like this, um, you know the beach, the book, and the movie, which is like this Alex Garland wrote it, which is like this kind of hidden backpacker paradise where you know it's hard to access and people don't know about it and that's a little bit like what ton is like but in order to access it you have to get this boat to rally beach and we arrived and it's this absolutely spectacular place like if you can imagine a photograph of a tropical paradise this is it it's like beautiful limestone crags covered in jungle rising up from this perfect beach and turquoise water and little Thai fishing boats and really nice hotels along the, you know, very, very well done and authentic. Nothing high rise along the beach and, you know, monkeys in the jungle. It's just an incredible place. And so we got off and we're like, Raleigh beach is so nice. And let's, let's try and get a a guest house here instead. This is so nice. And Jill really wanted to do it. We walked around and we tried and tried and tried to find somewhere and it was all booked out. It was coming up to Christmas and it was all completely booked out. And We were so disappointed and actually I I watched the trailer for the Impossible um, movie and the hotel that that's set in that they stay in is the the hotel that we were trying to stay at. That was our number one choice. And we were so disappointed. You know, we walked around for a couple hours and we couldn't find anything. So in the end, we we said, okay, well, let's let's go over to the next beach, Tonsai, and that and that really is that sort of like hidden paradise. The only way you can get there is by hiking over this really steep jungle pass, or in low tide you can kind of wade around this headland in the water. There's no other way to get there. So people have to work to get there, and it's a real climbing community. And and we arrived, and it was just, again, just a beautiful place, but but more of a sort of backpacker budget place, like little shacks on the beach and like really cool little open air bars and music playing and that kind of thing. And again, we walked up and down this beach trying to find like uh, one of these little beach cabanas to stay in. There was, there was a few of them and they're absolutely gorgeous and nothing doing, super disappointed. And we kind of gradually made our way backwards. We wanted to be as close to the beach as we could. And we glad- gradually made our way Further and further away, and as we did that, we, we went further and further uphill. Tonsai, unlike Raleigh Beach, has a really steep slope up from the from the beach up a mountain. And we were absolutely gutted. The only place that we could find was right up in the mountain. It was like probably a quarter of a mile up this steep path, um, right in the jungle, and that was the only place we could find. So at the time, we were we were really gutted. But had we had we stayed in that guest house in rally that was that hotel in rally that was one of the hardest hit of of anywhere in our in our region it was completely overwhelmed by the wave when it came in and had we stayed on the beach in Tonsai, all the places that we would have stayed in were completely obliterated by the wave too so our, where we ended up staying was one of the few places that didn't get any damage because it was so far up the hill so Incredible uh, set of kind of fortuitous uh, cir- uh, circumstances, which steered us away from Koh Phi away from Ralei Beach, and then away from the beach of Tonsai. And then it just got stranger after that. Well, that's what we want to hear about. You know, I want to ask you though, you're an
0: experienced traveler. The thing that The question that comes to my mind is, like, if I'm going to travel someplace, I'm going to make reservations at a hotel or an Airbnb or something ahead of time. Why wouldn't you do that?
4: Um, you know, we were in our twenties and stupid and and just wanted to be, and just kind of wanted to backpack or we used to call it flash pack because we weren't quite that sort of backpacker age. And, you know, we both had decent jobs in London. So we would sort of do the backpacking thing for a few days and then we would stay somewhere nice for a couple of days. And, uh, but we still had this sort of like, sense of we're just free and easy and you know we're just gonna we're just gonna see what happens. And it's lucky we did because if if we had made reservations, they would have been on Code PP and we wouldn't have been able to change our plans. I mean now I'm in my early 40s now. I definitely make reservations now because the reality of not making reservations is that you spend your entire time walking around trying to find somewhere to stay. So yeah, I've learned my lesson, but it was it was very fortuitous that i I hadn't learned it by the time I went, yeah, there. yeah back then it was it was great to be spontaneous right yeah. <laughs> yeah, back in those days, that's right, so we spent about a week there, and we kept talking about leaving and we we were just having a good time and and uh we met some Thai friends that ran a local bar there, and they were really into the climbing scene, and they were sort of showing us around and and it was a it was a really beautiful, beautiful time, fires on the beach in the evening and we just kept saying okay one more day one more day and then eventually it got to to christmas day and we were still there and we are like okay we're you know we're here for that now and we'd been vegetarian the whole time because uh, when you travel particularly to more remote places in in thailand especially tonsai where there's really no refrigeration you know it just it's sensible not to to eat meat because you know you're not going to you you're probably not going to get food poisoning that way so we were vegetarian but our little guest house uh, had done this like Western style, particularly British style big Christmas dinner buffet feast, right? With turkey and, you know, roast potatoes and all and all the works. And they and they were so excited that they'd done this for us, you know. And on the night, Jill felt so bad. They kept coming up and saying, Oh, we've done this special thing for for all you guys, and we're so excited for you to have it. And we sat down for the dinner, and because we were vegetarian, we weren't eating any of the turkey, but they kept coming up and saying, You know, don't you want to try some of the turkey? We made it specially. We brought it all over to this island for you. And we were sort of being polite. And then eventually Jill said, God, I feel so bad for mom. I'm just going to go get some. And she went and got a little bit, just a, just a little piece and ate it. And it was just, you know, happy Christmas. We've, we've had some turkey. Great. And later that night, she got violently ill from it. She got terrible food poisoning from it so we canceled the plans we'd made the next day and the plans we'd made the next day were to go diving we would just done this paddy course in phuket and we wanted to go we hadn't done any more diving since then we wanted to go out and do that so we'd booked this this paddy course to go diving um let me, let me just say was, for people that aren't divers paddy is p-a-d-i and what does that mean that's for? right professional association of diving international. And I think, I think it's that anyway. And it's basically the course you have to do to, to go diving. And, you know, it's usually like three days or so the basic level course we did, but we had it. So now we could go diving, you know, still with a, with a company, but, um, we were able to go down to about 20, 25 meters and we hadn't really used this, this, uh, certification yet. So we're like, okay, day after Christmas, this is going to be perfect. And we booked this day out to do a couple of dives
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning, it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature, and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DS01 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
3: Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1, Daily Symbiotic, at seed.com slash what, code 25what.
0: I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing.
3: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what.
4: But then on that morning, she had such a rough night that I I canceled it. Basically, I said, you know, we we can't go out. She, she's not well. We'll do it another day when, when she's better. That was the other thing. You know, if she hadn't eaten that piece of turkey, we would have gone out. Diving that day, and you know, if you were on the water when the wave hit, there would have been absolutely no chance. So then I said goodbye to Jill. I was going to stay with her, but she said, "No, you know, go off and have some fun." And I met up with my Thai mate Joey, and uh, we were going to go climbing together. And I remember he said to me, "Look, we have a choices of places we could go today. Like, I really like this place called Eagle Wall, which is here on Ton It's really close, really easy." And he was kind of pushing it. And he said, "Oh, we could hike over to to Raleigh Beach and then kind of climb up the other side of Raleigh Beach, where there's this big limestone kind of crag, like almost like a hill covered in jungle that leads up to this cliff and it's on a peninsula out to sea and, you go, and there's a really famous climbing route there called Lord of the Ties and uh, he's like, Oh, we could go to the Lord of the Ties wall and I, you know I, I almost just flipped a coin in my head and said." You know what? Let's let's do the hike over. And he's kind of like, "You sure? You know, it's kind of a long hike." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like doing that. Let's do the hike over." Well, it turns out that Eagle Wall, which is right on the beach and it's hemmed in. Once you get there, you have to wade across water to get there. And once you're there, there's n- there's no way out. Like you, you, the only way out is to wade back through the water. And the people that were really hurt on tonsai uh, were people that were climbing on equal wall. A couple people survived by literally climbing up and holding on, but we didn't go there. <laughs> and if we had, I mean, God knows what would have happened, but we went 50-50, we went to the other place. And as I said, he was kind of pushing that place. So I don't know why I chose that, but we hiked over to the other place and kind of climbed up there. And it was maybe the best place in the whole island to be because it was about 75 feet above the beach above above this above the ocean, you know jutting out to sea and we were climbing and having a, you know having a good time and it's this incredible feeling because you're climbing up this cliff and then you're literally just sort of dangling above this beautiful turquoise ocean and, and while I'm doing that, I look out and I see this wall of white water, you know, really far away, but I see this wall of white water and we've never had any surf in these beaches. It's always been absolutely calm. And I said to Joe, you know, do you guys, do you guys get surf here? This, I've, I've never seen anything like this. Check this out. And his face immediately dropped and he said, something's not right. We, this isn't right. He lived there. He was like a climbing guide and a, and a local and he knew instantly that something wasn't right because he'd never seen anything like this and knew that that shouldn't be happening here. But we had no warning. One of the reasons that a lot of people died, I think 240,000 people died around the Indian Ocean that day. And one of the reasons was there was no system in place for tsunami early warning systems. So they knew this earthquake had happened and they knew that this the tsunami would be spreading out like this, just this ripple effect spreading out from the epicenter of the earthquake but they had no way of letting people know and that's one of the the great tragedies of it was was it, it could have been averted but um they had no system in place at that time so we had no idea and it was it was before the days where smartphones were ubiquitous there was no way of like googling whether or not this happened there wasn't really no wifi there unless you were like in one spot on the island so we really had no way of figuring out what was happening and we just watched this wall of water kind of slowly Come towards us, and you know to be honest, I felt at that time that it was just like a big surf wave i didn't I didn't feel like there was anything anything wrong or, or dangerous with it, and we could see behind it there was another like two sets of it behind it, so it really just looked like if you were on a surf beach and you and you just saw like a big set of of waves coming in, it just looked like that, but we were above it, so we didn't really have a perspective on how big it was and underneath us was just sort of moored underneath us by the cliff was uh, was this sailing boat and i watched this wall of water come up and when it hit the sailing boat it just immediately swallowed it flipped this boat immediately and broke the mast and the boat was just gone so we knew then that it was something was was terribly wrong and the interesting thing i suppose is that Before then, and I think for a lot of people, you know, you think of a tsunami and you think of a giant wave, you think of like a 50 foot wave, but it wasn't that in this case. What it was was it was just an incredibly fast and powerful surge, and it brought so much water behind it. You know, your your average wave is quite, doesn't have a lot of depth going back to it, right? But this just went back. Forever, it seemed, you know, so it was just this huge surge of water. And, and after it kind of took over this sailing boat, it went up onto the beach. And there's always these long tail Thai fishing boats that are parked on the beach. You, you don't have to moor them, you can just sort of drag them up to the beach. And again, it just picked these things up and just you couldn't see them anymore. It just threw them towards the towards the hotel. So right on the edge of the beach where the jungle begins were all the the nice hotels. And we just saw the water just surge up and smash through the hotel and just keep going and keep going. And everyone was watching at this point. Everyone knew that something bad was happening. But there was also this incredible surrealness to it. I'd never been in a disaster before. I didn't know what to expect or how I would react. But you know, some people immediately were like, "We have to get down. We have to go and and uh, see if everyone's all right." And they ran down. And other people, me included, and I'm not proud of this, was were maybe in shock afterwards, but certainly at the time I just felt like it wasn't real. I didn't I wasn't processing how dangerous it was. I for some reason I just because I saw that boat destroyed I just I said well there's no one in that boat there can't be anyone in that boat because had there been someone in that boat uh th- they would have certainly been killed and you could have you know I could see on the top of the boat like a child's inflatable thing to play with and I just couldn't I couldn't accept the reality of of that and the same I couldn't accept the reality of what was happening to the hotel i just I just felt like it wasn't it was all going to be okay, so some people left and ran down the beach, which was a mistake because then the second and third wave hit, so it was lucky in a way that i that I wasn't processing it properly, and I wasn't one of those guys who immediately knew what to do. were those second and third waves were they just as strong as the first one? yeah. Yeah, they were it was like three waves one after another. They were they were a little bit apart. You, the wave came in, surged up and the surge just seemed to keep going forever and then it pulled back. And then after it pulled it pulled right back and then after it pulled back another wave hit. And a lot of the, you know, in general people said over the Indian Ocean there was a lot of the Damage and devastation that was done was simply just pulled back into the ocean afterwards. The, the the pull of that receding wave is incredibly strong, and actually, as the tsunami hits, you can feel the water. There's this famous picture of Raleigh Beach of these tourists standing on the beach and this family. And I know this family are okay actually uh, because the article that reported this said you know this is a picture of a norwegian family but they all survived and because it's quite a harrowing image to see it's these parents and these kids trying to run away from the wave but they're already sort of knee deep in water and the pull of the the water back is so strong that they're really struggling to run away which is why when a tsunami hits you have to get you have to get out there early because if you're already in the water you may well just get caught in it
0: so people that were there and got hit on the incoming, if they survived that, now they're being
4: sucked back out to sea. Yeah. I mean, I I think tragically, what we found out later was that um, we ran out of food afterwards, jumping ahead, but we ran out of food afterwards. And the reason why is because uh, all the fish were contaminated from uh, eating the, the bodies of the people that had passed away. Because a lot of that was just sucked back into the ocean and uh, very sadly. And um, so after we didn't go down and off to the first wave, and then we saw the second and third wave hit, we were very nervous about like when it was going to come again, because in order to get down from our safe vantage point and get to the next vantage point, it was maybe 500 meters, like um, one and a half, 2000 feet away. So it was quite a long way away. Like if you had to, you know, if you'd seen that wave coming in, you would have had to really sprint across the beach in order to get to the other high ground because otherwise Raleigh was completely flat. And that was one of the problems too, that the area where all the hotels were was just completely flat for a long time. So there was nothing, there was no way to really escape from that. But after a while, we felt it was safe. And, you know, obviously Jill wasn't with me and I was starting to get worried that she had left the house like i left her not feeling well and i was pretty sure that she was just going to stay in our place which i thought was going to be safe cuz it was it was so high up the mountain but i started to get worried like what if she's come looking for me you know what if she's what if for some reason she's come down to the beach to see what's happening and you know jill is one of those people who is like just switches on in an emergency and knows what to do and it wants to take control and is quite calm. And so I knew that she would be, she wouldn't be passive in this situation. She would wanting to be wanting to help people and wanting to have a positive influence on it. So I started to get really worried that she'd gone down to the beach and I really wanted to, to get back. So we walked, we kind of hiked down this path to the beach and when we got there, it was absolutely shocking. We really couldn't tell from where we were the the amount of damage that had been done, but there was just you know litter strewed all across the beach, broken Thai fishing boats, parts of the sailing boat, people's clothes, there were fishing boats that had gone all the way into the top of palm trees. That's how high they'd been carried. The hotel was destroyed, everything was just littered across the beach. It was like a bomb you know like a war scene or something like that. And we walked across the beach and at the far end of the beach, I found this this doll, this child's uh, this child's doll, just lying on the beach. And I just thought, oh my oh my God, you know. And it sort of really brought it home and I and I needed at that point to to get out of there and to get up and find Jill. And so we hiked up to the top of um, this pass over to Tonsai, and people were screaming there was someone shouting at us, you know, get, get down, get away from the ocean, get away from the ocean. It, there's, it's coming again. There was a lot of conflicting information. No one knew what was happening. And I went down and and again, it was like another war scene in in Tonsai. All the, all the places that we'd wanted to stay in were absolutely just, they weren't there anymore. They were just destroyed, uh, all the places we've been kind of hanging out were absolutely destroyed all the boats were destroyed and people were just wandering around like zombies you know it's people were just in shock and i think i was in shock too i i still couldn't really accept that people might have been killed even at this stage i just felt that it was something bad had happened but everyone probably escaped and, you know, as we were crossing over, we saw another sailboat that had been just broken in half on, on the rocks and we came by really close to it on the path. And and it was, you know, there's people's things inside, and it, it, but there was no one there and I just didn't know what had happened. So we came over to the other side and I kind of ran up this path to our little guest house. Just Really nervous now, really, like wanting to see Jill there, wanting to find her. And when I got there, she wasn't there. And I really started to panic because she she wasn't anywhere to be seen. And I was kind of just running around that area and shouting for her. And in my panic, I had missed this note that had been stuck to the door. and when I went back to the guest house, I saw it. and it was just three words on the mountain. And so I, I started to make my way up to the top of the mountain. And Jill's story from this as well, it's worth hearing her perspective, uh, because she what happened to her is she came out, um, she heard people like screaming and running past that past her, and she came out and, and people were grabbing, you know forcefully grabbing her and saying, "You have to run away, you have to run away. You have to go to higher ground." and she was distraught because she knew where i was and she knew that i would have been in a lot of danger and it was her instinct to go looking for me and she started to make her way down to the beach and thank god she stopped and she said this is this is stupid i could i could get really hurt here and maybe he's safe you know what else can i do so she she started being one of the people that to help round people up and she was getting everyone together and saying we all have to go to the top of the mountain there's there's no path anymore like you get to the end of the path and and then it's just thick jungle but she and and a bunch of other people were just kind of like fighting their way bushwhacking through this jungle to get as high as they could so meanwhile i i get back to her place i i see the note and i start doing the same i start Running through the jungle, and I see lots of people dotted around, and I'm, I'm, scr- I'm sort of shouting her name, and you know I keep walking. It feels like an eternity of just like going up and shouting her name, and it feels really hopeless. Like, what are my chances of finding someone amongst all these people in this crazy scenario in this huge, huge kind of jungle area? And someone hears me shouting, you know, Jillian, Jill. And she comes past and she says, are you Aaron? Are you Aaron? And um, I said, yeah. And she said, Jill's looking for you. She's she's about a hundred feet up there. She points me in the right direction. And I um, I ran up there and there was just a little clearing and she was with about 40 or 50 other people. And I saw her and then she looked over and saw me and burst into tears and ran over to me and we were just hugging each other. It, it felt so amazing to to be reunited and know that she was safe. I can imagine, man. I, it, to me, it seems like
0: sensory overload because not just the devastation and death all around everyone, but the confusion about
4: what actually happened because you still didn't know. Yeah. And I think that's the the biggest thing. You know, like in a in the movie of it everyone knows instantly what's happened and 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 is immediately on sort of panic mode and survival mode but in reality like you say there was there was a lot of confusion there was a lot of shock there was a lot of denial of what was happening there was a lot of people that were still just trying to go about their ordinary business you know like it, it was weird it was really really weird and like i say even with myself i look back and i, I, I struggle to understand why I was in such denial about the severity of what had happened, but I think you're right. I think it was just a lack of knowledge at that point. but i got got up there. This had been a few hours now after the the wave had hit, and you know, I said to all these people, we we think it's safe now and and we can come back down and And we did that. And even at this stage, I so i I got my phone and i I phoned my mom, and it was probably about four in the morning or something u k time. And she answered, and I said, "Mom, something's happened. I don't know what's happened, but we're okay." And literally after that, the line went dead, and we weren't able to do any communication for the next ten days. And uh, she always says, "The fact that you got that call off, you know," I, she said, "I wouldn't been, I wouldn't have been able to survive those ten days knowing, not knowing what happened." Yeah,
0: Because this was worldwide news, obviously. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I was in the U.S. at the time, and. We, you know, we heard about it. That was the news of the day for several days.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, after that, she got out of bed and saw it, and and was just so thankful that I'd managed to get that message across because I think that would have been just an unbearable. Now that I'm a father, it would have been an unbearable wait, <laughs> knowing that your kid was there in danger. Not
0: knowing how your how your
4: kids are doing
0: for that period of time. Yeah, yeah. So you were stuck there.
4: Yeah. So after we kind of got ourselves together, we went down and everyone immediately started cleaning up. You know, I think by the next morning, pretty much everyone that was there was was helping to to move all this this rubbish and timber and broken boats and and trying to just clear up. we were stuck there because the only way out of Tonsai and Raleigh is by boat, and there were no boats. They were all destroyed. And there was no food, like I said, you know, there's no kind of natural food sources on the island there. And, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of food stored and we couldn't eat the fish. And so, you know, very quickly there was a lack of food and they were airdropping rice. That's all they were, just rice, just packets of rice. And so for 10 days we ate rice, you know, we ate airdropped rice. I lost about 20 pounds, you know, and we helped people clean up. It was Everyone kind of pitched in together and, and tried to sort of repair more than anything, I suppose the, the people that were left, the, the Thai people that were left, helped them repair their lives a small bit because, you know, they don't have any insurance for this. This is their livelihoods have been absolutely destroyed. And we I guess we all just wanted to to help in some way. And and I felt very lucky because there were a lot of people around me that had been separated from family members, you know. Like there was a guy I remember that when I was we were helping to just carry stuff into this pile of rubbish and he was talking about how his wife and kids had gone on ahead of him to co actually, and he couldn't get hold of them. And I can't imagine what he was going through. But he kind of wasn't letting it in. He was just just working 12 hours a day to clear this thing and then sleeping because how do you face something like that when you have no control over finding it and so we felt we felt very lucky that we had found ourselves and that we were we were both okay that afternoon there was a lot of people hurt there was a lot of people that were being you know carried to kind of makeshift first aid centers not even really medical centers you know but a lot of it was just swept away by the ocean. You know, it was one of the weird things was that it was a lot of it was just gone, you know, and, um, it was very strange. So our guest house was still okay. Uh, so we slept there and, uh, you know, other people bunked in a lot of the places up in the mountain were okay. And some people left earlier, you know, like if you had, there were sort of priorities and if you had family or kids elsewhere or you had to then there were people were allowed to ship off but we stayed it was such chaos everywhere we we just decided to stay and help and we had no immediate urgency to get back like other people did so we just decided decided to stay and help and we had friends you know this guy we and his wife who was ran the climbing kind of school and and bar we'd made friends with them and they really welcomed us in and a couple of times they cooked for us they caught <laughs> they caught a bunch of crickets and fried them up they invited us around for some food you know we were hungry and they said come around, we, we found some food we're going to we're going to eat it and we were really excited about it it was a really nice thing for them to do and we, ar- <laughs> we arrived and they'd fried up all these crickets and uh, you know Jill she's scottish so she's a picky eater at the best of times they really just do like meat and chips and that's about it up there so but we were hungry man and I was like you know I, I, I went full-on in, into the crickets and I think Jill had a couple and she just passed me the rest under the table <laughs> uh, so much for a vegetarian diet right? so much for vegetarianism yeah I don't know how insects are included in that or not but yeah it was a real community spirit in some ways it was very sad and quiet you could feel something of the presence of what had just happened and it was such a sh- such an immediate change, but there was like there was a couple of moments where it was nice that was one, and there was another where we had somehow managed to track down. There was like a nice hotel on the other side of the island. you know this was a nice hotel, this was' in a backpacking area, so all the guests had been kind of immediately evacuated and and the staff had gone, and we said, I think they've got some beer left there, you know this is about five days in." and so uh we we went over there, and there was a couple of cases of beer, and we sort of put them on our shoulders and w- and walked back to the beach where everyone was working to to clear up with this this beer and just started handing it out to people and 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 it was just that moment of i suppose normality and being together and 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 sort of saying a, a thank you." and you know everyone was so happy and and it is amazing how people come together in those environments. I think that the the Thai people were really. Frightened, they were letting out fireworks, bangers every night, and throwing them into the ocean to sort of ward off evil spirits. And they were really afraid. And we sort of all just, we all just came together, you know, and and did our best to help in whatever way we could. And you know, sadly, it wasn't a lot or enough, but we we did what we could.
0: I can imagine for people like that that don't know what happened, and they'd never seen it happen before. Obviously, logic. Tells you it might happen again. Yeah, it's got to be frightening.
4: Yeah, and because there was no, we had no communication. Really, a lot of you know, some people by that point, you know, some people had got the information that it was an earthquake and there was a tsunami, but we had no real access to information other than sort of hearsay and what people were saying. So you you didn't know what was what was happening, and we were anxious to contact people at home again and let them know how things were. So it was it was a stressful uh, time. But I, I think it was a long time before I really processed how lucky we were. You know, I think in the moment you're just dealing with, as you call it, this this sensory overload and this incredibly shocking situation, which has suddenly happened out of the blue. You know, it was a beautiful blue sky day, perfect day. Everyone's smiling, happy, and then all of a sudden, it's just without any warning whatsoever. It it changed. And I think the suddenness of that was was just incredibly shocking. And it and it took us both a long time to to process and and really appreciate how lucky we were. The conversations
0: you and Jillian must have had in thinking back, like I mean, now you're telling the story, but thinking back, wow, what if we had not made that decision and yeah. another decision and then you ate the meat and it's just like a chain reaction
4: of things yeah, I think i I think I gave up like eight of my nine lives on that day because it was so many to to look back and see those five or six decisions which at the time were tiny decisions, unconsequential decisions. And yet later on, they would be life, life or death decisions. And it made me think really, you don't you don't know those moments when they're happening. You know them in retrospect, but you don't know them when they're happening. And it's kind of a hard thing to to realize in a way it's a hot because it's there's a lack of control to that right so there you can't prepare for that so i think all you can do in a way is just be really grateful and i think that one of the lessons afterwards i became really kind of obsessed with death and the and the nature of it and i'm kind of a philosophical guy i guess and i read a lot about it i was trying to understand what happened and what it meant that we had survived and and so many people didn't and what it meant these chance situations and and i don't i don't know if you can face i think in some ways it's really to to have a moment like that to have a sort of near-death experience like that is you know makes you really look at yourself and how you're living your life in a different way if there's a positive to bring from it i guess that's that's the positive to, to realize that the day that you'll die will be today. It's not going to be someday in the future. The day that it happens will be today. And that moment can happen at any time. And we can't face it head on. I try to understand, like if I could accept, I somehow felt if I could fully accept the reality of it and face it head on, then I would somehow kind of Overcome this this fear of death, but I don't know if we're, you know, I don't know if human beings have evolved to be able to do that. I don't, I don't think you can face the reality of it. We sort of picture it as some distant thing in the future, and put it out of our minds. And I think when you're confronted with it, and you realize that the day it will happen will be now, it changes your understanding of that in in quite a fundamental way. And you know, I, when I got back. I made a lot of changes to my life. It didn't happen instantly, but I started to really think about what I really wanted to do, you know, what was really important to me and to try and stop living my life for other people in the sense that so much of what we do we do to try and for our ego to be successful or to appear successful or cool or all the rest of the things that that we want other people to see us as. And a lot of times, those things we aren't for ourselves, right? If we were to take all of that out, what were the what would be the decisions that you would make? And I think if you if you realize that if you realize your own mortality, if you realize the impermanence of life and the fragility of life, then in some ways that frees you up to make those big decisions for yourself to live the life that you really want to live. And you know, soon after that, I I quit my job in the music industry. It was a great job, but you know, I always wanted to be on the other side of it. I, I always wanted to be making the music, not doing the business of the music, but I probably wasn't good enough. And so I ended up becoming a writer, which was kind of my lifelong dream and, um, and, and trying to to make that work. And I don't know if I would have had the courage to pursue that without that event kind of shaking things up for me. Isn't it interesting that
0: it, it takes something like that for us to realize, to kind of
4: step back And look
0: at wow! What am I really doing with my life?
4: Yeah, absolutely. We're we're on autopilot so much, you know. In modern life, particularly, we have such a busy life, and it's so even more so now. It's so filled with information. It's so filled with busyness. We kind of hold up that mantle of of being busy and as a kind of emblem of pride, right? And so we we don't have enough space to really consider some of those big questions. And I think a big event like that just knocks a bunch of that rubbish out of your head and gives you for a while at least the space to see how life is how life truly is how lucky we are to be alive and and i think that one of the big things i've taken from it is gratitude i think gratitude is really really important and it's easy to go through life without thinking about that because we're always striving for the next thing we live in a really ambitious culture we're always striving for the next thing and trying to achieve the next thing and often at the expense of being grateful for where we already are and present and appreciative of that and we have a little thai mask that we bought in phuket and we've got it hanging on our dining room table because i want to sit around that table with my family and just remember just be grateful and remember that. I came very close to not having that. You know, I came very close to the last you know 18 years or so not never not being there for it and not having my children and and not becoming a writer and not having all those thousands of experiences that have filled me with so much joy and and all the rest and I came very close to not having that. I came five decisions away from not having that. And then that's made me incredibly grateful for every day and and, and incredibly Determined to kind of keep that attitude of just thanks for for being alive and and understanding that it can be taken from you every minute. It doesn't mean you have to be fearful of that. What it because that's inevitable. But what it does mean is that you can't waste the time you have. This happened in two thousand and four.
0: Have you been back there since then? <laughs>
4: Yeah, I don't know why I did it. I, uh, about four or five years later, I, I went back um, with a friend of mine. It was actually a huge mistake, but it's this famous place for rock climbing, and, and he really wanted to go. And I, I, had, I was just about to get married to Jill, <laughs> actually. So, um, you know, as a kind of before we did that, we went, we wanted to go back there on a, on a climbing trip, and, and immediately we, we weren't supposed to stay there for very long. But immediately when I got there, I knew it was a mistake because there was I just felt so much the kind of ghosts of what had happened, and no one else did <laughs> you know it was like life had returned to normal, and people were sitting on the beach as they were before it happened, and everything had been rebuilt and uh, there were tourists there, and people were all smiling and laughs and it it was kind of shocking how. It can return to normal, and it was kind of shocking that that so much devastation occurred in this place, and and yet here I am just standing here again. And uh, I don't know why I went back to this day. I really don't know why I went back. I guess I felt I had to, but I found it really hard, and I actually ended up leaving pretty quickly after that.
0: I, I tend to think of like someone that's in the military and, and goes travels to another country during war and all the all the horror of that but then going back after the war to the same place it's probably a similar experience
4: yeah it is and i guess there is a a positive to that which is you know these people had rebuilt their lives life goes on and and that's a good thing we can't stay kind of mired in that tragedy forever you know life is for living and uh, i'm a firm believer of that so i think it is of course it's a positive thing i just for me personally It felt very strange. I really felt the presence of what had happened there. I couldn't stop looking around and thinking, right, people where people stood right here, where people stood right here. This happened, and now it's disappeared and gone. And that felt that felt strange. Yeah, life is very different for you now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm enjoying life now, like I said. That life is for the living, so you got to you got to enjoy it and be be happy and grateful for it, for sure. You and Julian got married, you got a family, you've got kids, right? Yeah, yeah, we got married. Got married up in Scotland. I even had the kilt on for that. And uh we uh, about 7 years ago now, we actually moved to the States. Originally for a bit it, for a job, a short-term job, but we got stuck here. I live out in Colorado, which famously gets 300 days sunshine a year. And I think the UK gets the other 65. So I feel like it's a pretty good trade. (laughs) If anyone's wondering why you have such high quality audio,
0: (laughs) you are a podcaster. And your, your podcast, I know my listeners are going to love your podcast because it's called Armchair Explorer, World's Greatest Adventurers Tell Their Best Story from the Road. That sounds, and I've listened to some of the episodes. Tell us about the show,
4: yeah, thank you. I, you know, one of the reasons I'm really honored to be on is because uh, I think there's some synergy between our shows in the sense that they're they're both about stories, and they're both about kind of incredible stories that you may not get a chance to experience yourself. And I absolutely love how you the concept of your show and how you do it. And my shows, you know, uh, it's it's about adventure, it's about travel. I've been lucky to have a bunch of pretty amazing guests telling their their stories. From you know the explorer Ed Stafford talking about his two and a half year trek along the Amazon River, who's the first person to walk the length of the Amazon. Talking, I've got an episode coming out with uh, with a woman who rode two thousand miles down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to kind of raise awareness about all that's happening, kind of post Vietnam War there in terms of the some of the devastation that still exists, but also so much of the beauty of stories about, you know, astronauts doing their first spacewalk, um, Olympic athletes, uh, backcountry skiing in Alaska. So I try, like you a little bit, I guess I try and tell incredible stories that inspire people, that take people out of their ordinary lives for a short period of time and celebrate really the the beauty and wonder of the outdoors and and the pure joy of just exploring this amazing planet, so i did i you know I was struck by this disaster, but it didn't knock out the love of of traveling for me and uh, i sub- subsequently became a travel writer actually and yeah it's a wonderful way to tell stories, but my dirty secret about this uh, this good sound is i 'm actually currently in my walk-in wardrobe surrounded by like these big blankets that I've put up against all the walls. So, you know, it's not quite a high-tech studio. The only problem is uh, Jill's getting pretty annoyed with me. She's like, come on, you know, every week you just have to take everything out and do this. But yeah, so maybe I'll have to move one of these days. So your podcast can be found on probably just about any podcast
0: app. And the website is armchair-explorer.com. That's right. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for for sharing that. I appreciate it. I'll have links. You're on all the socials as Armchair Explorer podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes for this episode. Aaron, thanks for coming on, telling your story. Oh, thank
4: you so much. Yeah. It's like I say, it's been an absolute honor, Scott. I appreciate it.
0: I have a bunch of things I need to tell you about. During our conversation, Aaron mentioned a movie It's called The Impossible, and right at this moment, it's available on Netflix. So if you want to get a sense of what happened in Thailand that day, I recommend you watch it. And in the near future, I'm going to be doing a special Q&A episode. Some listeners in the Facebook group suggested this, and it's actually something I was thinking about doing anyway. It wouldn't replace one of the regular episodes. This would be on a Friday in-between episodes. So think about what you'd like to ask me. It can be about the podcast or anything else. Well, almost anything else, I guess. Now keep in mind some of the people in the Facebook group have already sent in questions such as how do you find your guests and what's your favorite episode. So don't ask those things. And when you have your question, you can call into the podcast voicemail line 727-386-9468 and leave your question in a voicemail. If you can't do that, you can send me an audio file by email to scott at thatlike.com. I'm going to collect all the questions and answer all of them in a special episode coming up in the near future. It's going to be pretty fun. And if you enjoy hearing actual 911 calls and the backstory that goes with them, I recommend you sign up as a patron and support the show. For $5 a month, you get access to all of my exclusive bonus content called Raw Audio, and Raw Audio episode 10 just went live. In this episode, a Boy Scout leader is taking some boys on a hike, and they encounter a bear. How bad are you injured? Pretty bad. Okay, you're bleeding? A little girl calls 911 in the middle of the night. And what made you wake up tonight? There was... I think I heard a gunshot. You
4: heard a gun? Yes, and I see a bullet laying on the floor. I think it's a bullet.
0: And a car crashes into a grocery store and then things get worse. Oh my god. What's going on? Oh my god. What's going on? He's trying to kill himself. So don't miss out on this stuff. You can get access to all of the raw audio episodes past and future by becoming a patron at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, a question. Are you into plants? Do you wish you had a green thumb? Well, you might like this podcast. The host is Maria, and she is the plant lady at Bloom and Grow Radio. Check this out.
3: Have you ever killed a houseplant before? I know I have. In fact, I've killed so many houseplants that I actually created a podcast all about plant care, Bloom and Grow Radio, the podcast for plant people where we learn how to not only stop killing our houseplants, but learn how to help them thrive, grow our indoor jungles, and cultivate more joy in our lives. On Bloom and Grow Radio, I interview planty experts to get answers to the plant care questions we all have, but might be a little nervous to ask, like, what the heck is bright indirect light? What is soil and potting mix actually made up of? Or what is the best way to water my plants? For me, the mind-blowing thing about plant care is that it is so much more than just making our homes look Instagrammable. Plants are amazing tools for self-care. They help us disconnect from screens, reconnect with nature and ourselves, and they remind us things like growth is always happening in and around us, dormancy is sometimes necessary, and something as simple as it's important to water yourself. If you want to grow, we've got an episode for you. So what are you waiting for? Join our community of plant friends and subscribe to the Bloom and Grow Radio podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast player, or listen on our website at bloomandgrowradio.com slash podcast so we can all keep blooming and keep growing.
0: And finally, we have a voicemail from Karen, and she listens to the podcast in Scotland.
2: Hi, Scott. I thought I'd drop you a quick line to say how much I'm enjoying the What Was That Like podcast. I live on an island in the Outer Hebrides of the northwest coast of Scotland and work from home, so listen to loads of podcasts all day, every day. After finding what was that like, I am binge listening to every episode. I just love it. You have a great voice. I find it strangely comforting. Keep up the great work, and I hope you know it's appreciated and keeping me going through a dark and dismal winter in Scotland.
0: Thanks for that message, Karen. And of course, I would love to hear from you. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking to you. I mean, we're almost to the end of this episode. It's just you and me here, right? Right. I would like for you to call in and leave a voicemail. It can be a comment, a question, a suggestion, whatever. Just call 727-386-9468 and leave it there. Or you can email me your audio at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. It would make me really happy to hear from you. So that's it for this time. I hope you're doing well and staying safe. I'll see you in two weeks.